I don't know, Christianity just doesn't seem rational to me. I just don't get it. Like, there, there's so much stuff that doesn't make any sense. It seems like it's really anti-women. As a woman, if I'm going to be a Christian, does that mean I'm less than? Is it just me, or does the Bible seem completely outdated? outdated. All this stuff about slavery and women being mistreated. And... It seems like Christians completely ignore science. Doesn't the Bible teach you to hate people who don't think the same way you do? Well, greetings, everyone. I want to say hi to all the campuses, everyone joining us online. We're in this series called That's a Great Question, and I think it's a great place to be when we are a church that is exploring ideas like this. And we're asking the question, does faith in God particularly faith in Jesus, makes sense for thinking people in our modern day. And the question of today is, is, is God anti-sex? So two things happen in the room when I say that. The first is either your ears have turned, tuned in because you really do want to know how to engage this conversation about love and sex and marriage, or you start internally squirming because this conversation feels profoundly uncomfortable in church. So as your guest today, I'm so glad that I got to bring those feelings to you within the first 30 seconds of me being here. It is a big joke, actually, that the leadership at Menlo thought that I should come and give this message. So um, I enjoy being here, and I do want you to know the reality is I think we are actually all intrigued by this conversation, but we don't know exactly what to do with it and how to bring together two different worlds, the world of the Bible, the world of our spiritual lives, and the world of our culture, and the world of our sexual lives. And how do we bring those into harmony, especially in the church? So I want you to know that I'm a wife of 21 years. I'm a mother of a teenage girl and a teenage boy. And um, I've also, before I was in full-time ministry, was a counselor. And so I've spent many years on this question, and I will tell you that it really is on most of our minds, and for good reason because we're living in a culture where sex and sexual lives are the prevailing narrative, the metric by what all else is measured. So you might say, well, that's not true for you in your season or in your stage of life or in the place of spiritual maturity that you've experienced, but the words of our culture, they surround us, they influence us, they shape us, whether we're aware of it or not. In 2009, The Atlantic reported that 92% of the 174 songs that made it to the Billboard Top 10 contained messages about sex. So whether we wanna engage in the conversation or not, the conversation is happening. And as thoughtful people seeking God's way of living, engaging in the question of what God says about sex through his scriptures seems like an unavoidable reality. But not just that, not just an unavoidable reality, but I hope that we are going to find that this topic and this place can actually be a space where we experience grace, where we can experience holiness, and we can actually experience spacious freedom in God's design. Now, it's not easy to take on this topic, but what is easy is to look at what the Bible actually says and play it against what our culture says. So that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna take three questions together. The first is, what does the Bible actually say about sex, particularly through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth? The second is we're gonna say, what is the narrative of our culture about sex? And then the third is we're gonna to try to say, well, how can thoughtful people in our modern day engage perhaps in a different way? 
And we're going to do this through looking at a passage uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which is sort of the background that we're using for this entire sermon series. And the first thing that I want you to know about what's going on in this passage is think about that Paul is a pastor who's writing a letter to his people. He's actually trying to help engage contextually with what is happening in this people's world. And he's their pastor. He's caring about their hearts and their lives. And he's engaging with what's happening in their world in Corinth. So here's a little context for the world of Corinth in the time that Paul was writing. First, Corinth was a place of high culture and fast living. One commentator said that Corinth was like the LA, New York City, and Las Vegas all rolled up into one. Corinth was a place where many different gods were worshiped. It was a place where worship happened in lots of different ways. One of those was uh, this, there was a hill outside of the town and there was a temple at the top and the goddess Aphrodite was worshiped there. She was the goddess of love. Corinth was, pla- was known as a place of sexual immorality that ran rampant. In fact, the term Corinthian girl was used to describe a promiscuous woman. In addition to all that that was going on there, Corinth was also a place of elitism where a very small minority of people had a great amount of power and influence over sort of the typical middle class. So I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but it actually does seem like a pretty familiar dynamic to me. We might think, oh no, we don't don't have temples and worship and gods and goddesses, but I do want you to know that I'm hailing from Richmond, Virginia, And when I told my friends that I was coming to Menlo Park, home of Google and Facebook, there were many, many oohs and ahs. And I drove from the San Francisco airport and I passed the Evernote building. I was like, it's Evernote, Evernote, you have changed my life. So in a lot of ways, we may not have temples, but we have structures and buildings and and systems that are confusing and competing in our world. And most certainly, and most importantly for tonight, around sex. But in the midst of this, the way of Jesus has been spreading. This radical form of love, this this message of this man who came, who died, and who was resurrected, and who invites people into a different kind of living is also spreading. And so the church at Corinth has been birthed and it has begun. And now Paul is addressing some things that are going on inside the church. And he's talking about what to do with what the culture says about life and what Jesus says about life. And so when we come to this passage, Paul has just been on a run about a variety of specific issues that have come up in the church, very specific. It's almost like listening to a phone conversation where you can't hear the other side, but you can kind of understand and get at what's happening, and that's what's happening here. And so let's pick up and read this passage together. It'll be on the screens, or if you want to read it in your Bibles, you can join me. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to start at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 
flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The specific issues that Paul is talking about, prostitution, a man who's sleeping with his father's wife, all of these things are all in the category of what I would call my right to my own business. Now, we may think that sounds salacious, but the reality is this is the world that they were living in. Paul is engaging as their pastor, and he's saying, hey, I told you, later in the letter he says, follow the way of love. He's like, hey, guys, I'm telling you to follow the way of love, but this is not actually the way of love. It seems evident that this idea of Jesus' love required some explanation as all these believers were engaged in behaviors that Paul called out as not love at all. And so what Paul does is he provides cultural commentary on some of the prevailing statements of the day. If you notice as we read that passage, there was some quotes, there were some statements and quotes. What those statements were would be like Corinthian sayings of the time. And Paul's saying, hey, this is something that you guys say, but I want to reinterpret it. Let's look at it in a new way. These statements, particularly that we're going to look at today, these two are about what the Corinthians would say about the body, about their rights, and about love. Those two phrases, the first one was, I have the right to do anything. And then the second one was food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. It might be similar to us saying in our day something like, in the words of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. Or if you're under the age of 40, perhaps you're familiar with Sam Smith's invitation that this ain't love, it's clear to see, but darling, stay with me. In that day, there was a prevailing notion of the day that what happens to us spiritually is removed from what happens to us physically. And so that played out in a couple of different ways. If what matters to us spiritually is totally removed from what matters to us physically, then there were those who believed that you should deny your body every pleasure and that sex was bad and that food was bad and that you needed to be in this sort of ascetic reality and that that is the way that you could get yourself to God. And then there was a second notion of the day, was that because the body doesn't matter, because my physical life is not connected to my spiritual life, I can do whatever I want with my body. There was a licentiousness. There was just a sense that there was complete freedom. And what Paul is saying is that's not actually true, that there is an integration where our spiritual life is expressed in our bodily life. I have a friend back home who's very smart. She's a Georgetown professor, and the the area of study is in the area of paradox. And she talks about the idea that our lives are full of paradox, but as human beings, we don't really like the idea that there's a tension that we're trying to hold together. We really would prefer to be in one place or the other. And I think that's the case here, and I think it's the case still in our culture. In the day at Corinth, it was like either all of this physical stuff and all of these complications about the sexual life and about marriage and singleness, either it needs to be all bad or it needs to be all free and there can't be anything in between. And what Paul is saying is, hey, in this passage, these things actually do matter. That the way we express our physical life through our bodies and our sexuality is an outworking of our spiritual lives. That there's no such thing as separating our physical life from our spiritual life. 
But even more so than that, when we talk about this kind of topic, there's something so important in this passage. And it's the bookends of this talk about sexuality. It's the verse right before verse 12. And it's verses 19 and 20. So let's look at what this verse 11 is. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Before he even starts talking about all of these kind of guidelines for what to do with our sexual lives, he says this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And then he talks about sexuality. And then he bookends it with verses 19 and 20. So you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You see, in marriage counseling, we often would say that whatever the problem is that comes is not the actual problem. That when people come, this is kind of counseling 101, when a married couple comes to discuss their problems and begins to fight over small things like the toothpaste or the toilet paper, it's never actually about the toilet paper. It's about the erosion of trust over time. It's about resentments that have built up. So even though we may be going to World War III about the toilet paper, it's not actually about the toilet paper. And here we see a similar thing at play. There's a foundational principle that Paul is laying out that we will not be able to handle talks about what is freedom and what is restrictive and what is God's design for our sexuality if we have not engaged deeply with these bookend principles. The first one is this, that you were so worth it to Jesus Christ that he died for your sin that Jesus has actually done something for you that you could not do for yourself. If our understanding and experience of the gratitude, of the forgiveness of our sin, of our invitation to eternity, of our ability to have communion with our Heavenly Father, if we don't have that experience of grace, why would I want to not be my own? Why would I want to be bought at a price? In fact, that concept can even sound punitive I was running today and thinking about this, and I'm like, wait a second, Paul was a pastor who loved his people. And I think sometimes when we hear in our very individualistic culture, in our very independent culture, in our culture that says that you have the right to do whatever you want, however you want, when we hear that phrase, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, we can hear that in a very scratchy way. And that does not feel freeing, it feels punitive. But what if it's a pastor saying to his people, can you believe that you were so worth it to your God in heaven that he bought you and redeemed you and took the cost for you through the blood of his only son? And can you believe that God loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you in this self-restrictive and confining space where your independence is the most important thing to you, where your comfort is the most important thing to you, but that he actually invites you to not be your own? to be a part of something bigger, something greater, to be a part of a community, the universal church, the place of believers. And if we hear you are not your own, you were bought with a price as restrictive rather than expansive, then forget about the rest of the conversation. Like it's just not worth having. We're not gonna to wanna to talk about Monday money. We're not gonna to wanna to talk about sex. We're not gonna talk about freedom. We're not gonna to wanna to talk about sacrifice because if our understanding and expression of grace, this idea that I have had a gift given to me that is worth giving up everything else in my life for, that God has done something for me that is worth saying, yes, God, however you tell me life should be lived, I believe that you're telling it to, my, to me for my flourishing, if we don't believe that really, truly, the rest of the conversation just falls apart. 
It's just like marriage counseling when it's not about the toilet paper. Like, believe it or not, it's actually not about sex. It's about this idea that do I believe that God's way, that God's design, that God's, that God's invitation given here through Paul to the church at Corinth is actually for an expansive expression of my life. Do I believe that everything else is secondary to my identity in Christ? Because if not, the rest of it is hard to take on. Grace is freely given, but it was obtained at a cost. So Paul is reminding us that everything else we interpret in life, every single thing comes out of that principle. Said another way, if this is not a rock bottom truth for your life, then it's going to get hard to talk about anything else we care deeply about. Our political stance, our rights, our money, our bodies, our sexual choices. We're not gonna want to have that conversation. But because of this important truth, that not only were you washed, not only were you justified, and to be justified is not just to be removed from the negative of sin, but actually to come into the positive of communion with our Heavenly Father. Not only was what was in your past washed and made clean, not only were you justified, removed from the damage of sin, but also into the expansive place of God's grace. Not only that, but that you were sanctified which means that you are in a process of becoming more like Christ. Not only that, but we are all becoming and we're all in it together and we're in this, this journey together where we can experience not less in ourselves, but more in Christ. That is actually where the Bible has to say about sex. So when God actually starts to talk about God's design for sex in marriage and this protection that he puts around it, he's doing it in the context of our human flourishing. So what's our cultural narrative about sex? If that's what the Bible has to say about sex, and of course there's more to say, 1 Corinthians 7 says more, and we'll mention that in a moment. But what is actually, when you think about it, what is our cultural narrative on sex? So here's what I know. Anything that's powerful is often deified or vilified in our culture. I'm gonna say that again. Anything that's powerful is often deified, meaning it's worshiped, or it's vilified, it's seen as evil. Take it away from sex, talk about technology, it's the same thing. I'm raising kids. Technology keeps us connected, technology keeps us together, and yet it's the number one place that we argue about, right? We have this tension, we live in a paradox. And sex is similar, and in fact, I believe that our culture, because sex is so powerful, our culture also deifies or vilifies sex. We idolize sex as the number one thing that is most important about people, not just most important about them, but is their very identification. The top six dating websites in America, including Tinder and Match.com, had a total audience of 28.4 million as of December 2017. So our cultural message is that a sexual relationship is what identifies and justifies your existence as a person and that getting into that relationship is worth your worship. Our culture promotes an idea. Just think about this, I'm inviting you to consider it. Our culture promotes an idea that you are less of a person if you are not in an active sexual relationship. If our culture promotes the idea that you are less of a person, then that means that any restrictions, any restrictions on sex are, are damaging your personhood. They are coming against you as a person, which is why I think this is such a heated conversation. If you're single, this message makes it seem like the celibate life is abnormal and even wrong. 
and that your singleness is a mark that you are not only unfulfilled, but less of a person because of your relational status. I spoke with one of my single friends last week, and she said the following, the world says that something is wrong with me, that I'm boring, or something must be broken. And the church, well, the church just isn't saying anything. That is a deeply damaging narrative. On the other hand, our cultural narrative can also vilify sex. We fear for our children. We have baggage in our marriages as we experience the consequences of sex without boundaries. Psychology Today reports that media messages normalize early sexual experimentation and portray sex as casual, unprotected, and consequence-free, encouraging sexual activity long before children are emotionally, socially, or intellectually ready. This is not a Christian newspaper, people. This is the number one report from our number one sort of standing in psychology. The American College of Pediatrics reports that pornography use by adolescents and young adults, which is, which is reported as being viewed by almost 80% of young adult males, often leads to a distorted view of sexuality and its role in fostering healthy personal relationships. A woman is assaulted almost every minute in America. And of women assaulted, 70% experience long-term consequences of post-traumatic stress disorder that impact their daily lives. There are millions of Americans, and many of us, who live in the pain and the shame and the regret and the hurt of those experiences. For many, sex is dark and conflicted and shameful. And not only that, but sex has a way of actually turning us against people. The betrayal of our spouse means we don't like any of those people anymore. Our experiences with pornography change the way that we view women. Those kind of things are also deeply damaging. You see, we live in a world that has a very conflicted narrative about sex, even if we think that it works the way it does, it doesn't work the way that it does. And that's what the statistics are proving. So how do we move forward in that? This Corinthian idea that we can separate our spiritual choices from our physical choices wasn't true then, and it isn't true now. Our God made us not just one portion of us for his glory, but he made all of us for his glory. And God has created order around our lives that allows us to flourish. So what is the good news in all of this mess? What is the Bible's design for sex? Is God anti-sex? And I would say no, but here's a simple statement of truth. What I believe the Bible has to tell us about sex is that sex is good, but it is not God. The highly counter-cultural truth of Jesus's way is that our personhood is more important than our gender. Our personhood is more important than our sexual status. In fact, Jesus places our personhood, our soul, as what's to be guarded and cherished to the deprioritization of everything else. So God is not anti-sex. God is pro-person. God has made sex good within his design, but he has not made it God. People who are told that they are different or less than or other no longer have to experience that in Christ. Because of the cross, because we are no longer our own, left to our own devices to interpret our identity and to interpret our value and to interpret our worth, the cross becomes the lens that now all is viewed through. 
We see this all play out in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul encourages those in marriages to stay married and where Paul devotes an extensive passage on the goodness of being single, where celibacy isn't seen as a detriment but a gift. Paul was particularly honoring of people who were single, and in the ancient world, it was so often understood that it was a duty and a normalcy to get married and have children. So for Paul to give advice and encourage singleness was an incredible affirmation of the meaning and value of the life of single people, and it would have been really unusual to hear. In fact, it was so, such a strong message within the church that for the first 1,500 years of church history, single people were given the places of honor in the front of the church, and married people had to sit in the back. It seems like maybe we've made a flip-flop there, but could we live in the paradox that one is not better than the other? Sex is a gift expressed in marriage. No longer is one relational status, though, regarded as better than another, one title or gender or status regarded as better than another. Because we've all been redefined in Christ, everything else takes second place. There's no circumstance that you cannot pursue union with Christ and live with God in a glorious way. Salvation doesn't come through sex. And our salvation is worked out and, it, and it is, is expressed as we begin to grow and to heal from any, any damaging narratives we've experienced through sexual brokenness and sin. In my years as a counselor, I had a front row seat to many, many stories of hurt and shame. And this idea in this passage that a sexual sin is different than other sins because it is a sin against our own body, I, I'm here to attest that I believe that's true. But it does not mean that there is not hope. And there does not mean that there is not redemption and healing and wholeness available to us if we have experienced that in our life. It just means that it's going to take work. But you know what? The amazing thing about great places of pain is that they are great places for God to express his grace and his healing in really miraculous ways. It isn't easy, but it is worth it. Here's a promise I cling to if that is true for you. Philippians 1.6 Paul, again, a pastor writing to his people, to the church at Philippi, said this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, we're all still becoming. We're all still on the journey. So yes, we've been washed. Yes, we've been justified. Yes, we've been sanctified. Yes, the truth is that we are no longer our own, that we are bought with a price, but we are still in process. One of my favorite quotes is from Martin Luther, and it says, this life, therefore, is not being, but becoming, not health, but healing, for we are not yet what we will one day be. You see, it's worth it. Sex is good, but it is not God. And because it is not God, it does not have to define you. So what if we, what if we together, the church universal, the church here, the church back home, stood against the idea that sex is God and actually leaned into the paradox that sex can be a gift in marriage, singleness can be a gift in community, and that both can be mutually esteemed? What if we were a community where we honor marriages and we honor singleness? Contributing as a disciple is more important than social norms. Peter Scazzaro wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he said that perhaps one way to look at the gift of your life, whether single or married, is that healthy marriage can be a facet of God's design 
that reflects the depth of God's love expressed in the sacrificial love and intimacy of one man and one woman. And that singleness turns the facet of God's design on the breadth of God's love expressed through the sacrificial love and intimacy that can be found in community. As my friend at lunch said, it isn't just that my singleness seems to be a message to the world that something is wrong with me. It's also about going through life without partnership. People act like sex is this magical thing that's going to redefine them. And I think it can be good, and I'm sure has flashes of magic in it. But sex does not make me a person. She went on to say, I don't know why people are scared to invite one person to dinner. Sex is good, but it is not God. So finally, can thoughtful people in our modern day engage in a different way? Can it be different? I believe it can. So I want to give you guys three statements that I want you to continue. And I really do encourage you this week to ask yourself, do I believe these to be true? First is this. There can be intimacy and vulnerability and joy that come in married life and in a celibate life. Second is this. Where there is sexual pain, abuse, or shame, there can be healing, redemption, and renewal in Christ. And the final one is this. In Christ, our most important identity is our personhood. We are secure in that love no matter the circumstances. So I'm gonna give you an invitation this week to consider. One for those who are married and for those who are single. So here's my challenge for you if you're married. Paul quotes scripture and says that you have been made one flesh, that when you are married, you are no longer two people, but that you are one person. And that the glory of God is expressed in that oneness. The way that you live out that married life is expressed in that oneness. So I'm gonna give you a very practical invitation. And this is it. Sometime this week, can you decide to love something that your spouse loves? If your spouse loves football, could you just love football for like two hours? If your spouse loves a clean house, could you just love a clean house for just like, I mean, really, I'll even lower it, like 30 minutes. Like, just love a clean house for 30 minutes. Engage as if you were one. And step outside yourself and say, what would it be like to really choose to love something that my spouse loves? And if you're single, your status is not a mistake and it is not a waste. So how can you experience the higher forms of love, beauty and intimacy in your community this week? And hey, if you're sitting next to some married people, tell them that you're coming over for dinner. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have taken on a big topic with just a few minutes. And oftentimes when we start these conversations, it seems like we actually have more questions than answers. But thank you, God, that you are a God who invites our questions. Thank you, God, that you are a God that said, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with your whole heart. Help us, Lord, to be people who seek you with our whole heart. If there are places where we feel restricted, we feel scratchy about what you're asking of us, Lord, would you remind us of our joy that comes in our salvation? Would you remind us that your design is for our good and for our flourishing? Lord, for those of us who are experiencing shame, pain, or regret, who have places in our life where we have closed doors that we do not want to open, God, in this moment, 
Jesus Christ, who says that do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. Lord, would you allow us to experience what it means to be washed in you, to be justified in you, to be sanctified in you, just a little bit. Would you allow us to crack that door open and do the work to experience the miracle of your healing? In your name we pray, amen. Thank you.